Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 79th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we bring you a conversation from the Southeast Energy Efficiency Alliance's annual Southeast Energy Summit, where we had a chance to record an episode of the podcast in front of a live studio audience. Nah, who am I kidding? A room full of energy experts who thought they were just there for a panel, but instead got roped into a live recording of the podcast. In the conversation, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the practicalities of distributing the historic amount of funding coming down from the federal government focused on energy-related matters. And in particular, we addressed the elephant in the room, which is the concern that these funds may not actually help those that need it the most. Before we talk to our guests, though, we have a few announcements to share. Next week is Making Energy Work, NCSEA's annual regional conference taking place October 25th through the 27th in Raleigh, focused on clean energy policy and regulation. At the conference, we'll be featuring conversations on the carbon plan, customer clean energy programs, the rooftop solar market, the role of municipalities in the clean energy transition, and even North Carolina's clean energy fund. And we'll also talk about how all of these topics intersect with the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act and how these large federal investments are set to be implemented and distributed throughout the state. In particular, we're featuring a keynote speaker from RMI who will talk to us about how IRA provisions can and should be implemented at utility commissions across the country. And we're also partnering with a number of great organizations to host some pre-conference events as well, including a workshop hosted by the North Carolina Department of Commerce, the North Carolina Governor's Office, the NC Department of Environmental Quality, and the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center called Building North Carolina's Clean Energy Workforce. And then our partners at E2 and the Chambers for Innovation and Clean Energy are hosting a workshop titled The Economic Case for North Carolina Offshore Wind. So make sure to register for the conference and these workshops today at makingenergywork.com. And last, before we get into the show today... Our episode is brought to you by Kilpatrick Townsend and Stockton, LLP. As your business navigates the fast-changing and complex energy sector, Kilpatrick Townsend can guide you through the myriad of rules and regulations around developing or financing clean alternative energy sources and implementing sustainable energy programs and practices. Kilpatrick Townsend's attorneys understand the energy industry and are passionate advocates for the success of their clients. For more information, visit kilpatricktownsend.com. Okay, on to the show. Back on October 3rd, we were privileged enough to be invited by our friends at the Southeast Energy Efficiency Alliance, or SIA, to host a conversation at their Southeast Energy Summit. During the initial planning phases for this conversation, we had imagined that we would spend most of the time celebrating the historic investments made at the federal level and talk about how these funds would be transformational for communities across the Southeast. It became apparent, though, in our conversations that the topic was much more nuanced and complex. And in fact, may not be as rosy as we might have imagined. There are some real concerns about state political considerations getting in the way of fund disbursement, and that the process of deciding how the funds were distributed may not be as equitable as we might have hoped. 
I thought the conversation that ensued was incredibly enlightening and provides a perspective that we may not hear much of given the excitement around these funds at the moment. I've been anxiously anticipating the release of this episode since it's one that I think is set to change some perspectives. So I hope you're ready because here we go. Clean energy. Our first guest on the podcast is the Director of Community Relations for Huntsville Utilities. He joined the Huntsville Utilities team in 2011 as the company's first governmental affairs manager. Since then, his role has grown into oversight of community and public relations, media relations, governmental and regulatory affairs, and residential energy services. Before the utility, Joe spent the previous 10 plus years as the governmental affairs liaison at the Huntsville Madison County Builders Association. Our next guest on the podcast is Joe Gertis. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Next up on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast is the director of Georgia Initiatives for the Center for Community Progress. In this role, she brings thought partnership and strategies for vacant, abandoned, and deteriorating properties to the state. Prior to joining CCP, our guest was the managing director for the Transformation Alliance, a partnership of nonprofits, government agencies, and businesses working with residents of impacted communities in shaping better health, climate, and economic outcomes through art and culture-based community engagement, and by improving housing, transit, and jobs access. Prior to the Transformation Alliance, our guest was also a senior program director with Enterprise Community Partners in their Southeast market. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Odetta McLeish-White to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Odetta, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Matt, for reading that incredibly long sentence. <laughs> so I'm listening to it, I'm like, we could have broken that up, but thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. And we are going to jump right into the live recording from that morning at the SIA conference. Here we go. The, the theme of our conversation is capitalizing on the clean energy momentum. So I know that there are some other panels going on this morning focused on uh, federal funding. So we'll talk about uh, that a little bit. Uh, that'll be the, the narrative and lens that we take at the beginning of our conversation. But I think it's going to really focus in on uh, the role that you know, local organizations like your, your local utility and community organizations play in ensuring equitable access to clean energy and energy efficiency. And so I'm really, really excited about our conversation. As we alluded to a little bit ago, the overarching theme of the conversation this morning is the significant amount of federal funding coming down to states and local organizations uh, in the clean energy and energy efficiency realms. So in the lead up to this panel, we spoke quite a bit about some of the challenges and opportunities associated with all of this funding and implementing that funding and ensuring that local communities and disadvantaged communities have access to this funding. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you're seeing on the implementation side to ensure that these funds are being spent in a way that's aligned with the needs on the ground. And we'll start with Odetta on this one. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I have spent a lot of time over the past several years thinking about um, systems and systems change and the ways in which if you are not uh, actively changing how a system works, all of your great intent will sort of be dissipated, right? You sort of send something beautiful into a system that has not been changed. Um, and you will kind of get the same result you were trying to avoid at the other end of it. 
So it's so important to think about the systems through which any of these large fundings, uh, pots of money um, are coming. And they are, um, they are exciting amounts of money. They are being you know, labeled once in a lifetime, generational, and I think that's correct. But I do think um, some of the challenges are gonna be showing up in the ways that the, the systems expected to actually literally send the money have not necessarily been updated mm. in that sort of once in a lifetime generational kind of way. Um, I think it's also landing in a social context right now after um, our summer and years of racial reckoning and um, housing justice conversations, environmental justice conversations becoming, um, they've always been there, but maybe louder or others have gotten more educated. So now maybe there's a little bit wider audience about it. Um, so the ways in which people expect to be in partnership with the administrators of this these large pots of money, I think is, you know, might create some friction um, just because now we have expectations around transparency, partnership, respect, how people feel respected when they're asked um, or not asked how they'd like to receive money and what they'd like to do with it. And I do think one of the things we chatted about in our prep call was how for many decades, folks are kind of trained to handle federal money a certain way. You're going to have your reporting. You're going to have to track it. We're going to need, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, and now in an attempt to be very responsive and nimble, there's this, you know, get that money out there and, and you know, we trust you. But is the trust coming the other way? So the recipients of the funds are like... <laughs> No, no, if I don't follow some kind of rule, uh, you're going to come back and take this money away or I'm going to get dinged somehow. Right. And it's kind of like a, a baby, you know, without swaddling clothes because suddenly they're supposedly free. And but it feels weird to just be given all of this freedom and they don't quite trust it yet. So that speaks so much to how the government and others need to talk to each other. Well, right, Joe? And, yeah, the way the money flows down from the federal government to the states, considering the politicization of everything and you have a consistently deep red south opting in or out of receiving federal funds from a blue administration and so speaking from the perspective of Alabama they the state has already opted out of some of the money that would flow through our uh, Department of Economic and Community Affairs and so that's disappointing um, and then the other challenge, especially for a municipal utility like Huntsville Utilities, is a lot of these funds come in the form of tax incentives. Mm. We don't pay taxes. But in the IRA, we did have a victory of at least putting in the law the mechanism to allow for direct pay incentive. As we were advocating for that, they had asked us how, and we're like, well, you've never done it before, so we're going to have to figure that out. So it's a slow roll on this money getting all the way down to the local governments and to the local organizations that can use these funds to get to those residents, citizens, customers in our case, to benefit from it. Meanwhile, uh, in the Tennessee Valley region, we have the TVA with a similar challenge in terms of tax incentives. And so that direct pay dynamic again still don't know what that's going to look like yet will probably involve a third party like a bank or something like that to accept the funds and then see that they're spent but going back to something odetta said about federal money being so daunting that some people just don't want to be bothered with it mm -hmm. certain you know especially state level governments and then the political dynamic that i talked about it just 
it gets ridiculous in terms of, you know, you want to help your community get the, get the help to the folks that struggle. And it's, it's so cumbersome. You just can't. And, and part of our prep call too, we talked a little bit about, we've experienced a similar dynamic in North Carolina when it came to the Volkswagen emissions funds. Uh, and, and in North Carolina, we had about $93 million allotted to the state as part of that uh, settlement agreement. And that funding ended up being a political tool in which the legislature held against the governor's office. And we almost didn't receive that funding to be deployed in the state of North Carolina for EV charging infrastructure. And it sounds like there's a similar dynamic going on in Alabama with some of this federal funding now. That's correct. Yeah. And I know that's a, that's a big challenge. But I guess let's, let's turn the conversation on its head a little bit. So we talked a little bit about some of the, the challenges here. But... What do you foresee as the biggest opportunities for, for both of your organizations with some of this funding coming down and how it can be implemented for your customers or your partners or the citizens that you're working with? And Odetta, we can start with you on this. Okay. I just think it's money that's never been available and where that nimbleness or flexibility can be fully exploited. I think some really exciting, either important gaps can be filled, things that people have been needing for a while, or you could maybe try a few new things. I'm thinking of one local land bank, for example, in Georgia that um, you know was kind of on its toes to its city to city um, governments that um, you know fund it and sort of grabbed its little bit of the city and county level, for example, ARPA funds that were available. So for those that kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit and enough relationship building, uh, yeah, it's a new pot of money. It's money that wasn't there before and they can connect it. If they can make the argument and sort of the nexus between what they do and what that money's supposed to do, um, you know, you can, you can get to your budget, you know, doubled, tripled in some cases for smaller groups. So that's not nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. What about you, Joe? Well, and for a local utility, it gives us an opportunity to partner with people that would receive the funding. Uh, for example, weatherization money. Mm-hmm. You know, our community action agency spends that money. We have a few other nonprofits that receive those funds. Well, we have our own program uh, called Project Share, where we go in and do energy efficiency upgrades and retrofit work. That's funded by our customers, and so. With the inflow of this new money and for a a WAP program to be a lot more robust, perhaps help a lot more people, then we can put them through our uh, qualification process. And then perhaps they get not just weatherization, but maybe they get new heating and cooling too Mm. through our program. So they can make the, our dollars and the WAP dollars go farther with this new influx of money. So really, and I I think we're going to get into this later, those partnerships become extremely important, and it's weird for me to hear at a conference like the SIA conference how the relationships that we have in Huntsville with our nonprofits, with the housing authority, with the folks that do the LIHEAP money, it's all very well-oiled. No one is territorial. Uh, everyone works together. We just want to make sure we get the help where it's needed, and I hear stories about other communities around the region, and there's no trust. There's no relationship. I don't even think they talk to each other in a lot of cases, and that is extremely confusing to me. I think that really emphasizes the importance of a conference like this and bringing together the utilities and bringing together nonprofit organizations, bringing together implementers to have these important conversations about how we partner, especially in light of all of this federal funding coming down the pike and making sure that we're considering 
everything that we need to be considering as part of that process moving forward. I think there's this perception, and it, it's to the very beginning of my relationship with SIA, that utilities are somehow a hurdle, hmm. and we're not. We have our own constraints that we deal with, but we want to help our customers just as much as any other organization out there that helps our customers do. So building those relationships so that when there's an opportunity, you know who to call, you know who to work with, and maybe maybe you can't get it worked out, but you can still have the conversation. That's what SIA does for the utilities and I think the, the organizations that we work with is to break down some of those walls and those perceptions that are incorrect. So you just alluded to it in, in some of your comments. So to take a step back, I'd love to hear you both share uh, just at a high level, some of the overarching goals and the vision that you have with both of your organizations and maybe some of the challenges that you're, you're trying to overcome. So from the nonprofit perspective, Odetta, I'd love to hear, you know, big vision, what, what your organization is trying to address and what you would love to see moving forward. Sure. Okay. So the Center for Community Progress is a national nonprofit. It's been around for about 10, 12 years now, uh, really rooted in the foreclosure crisis, honestly, of 2007, 8, 9, around there, as municipalities, cities, and county governments were suddenly faced with tremendous portfolios of formerly occupied homes or pipe farms, parcels of land, and really trying to figure out how to take these in and process them and get them back into productive use. Now, U.S. Representative Dan Kildee and um, Professor Frank Alexander here at Emory Law School actually co-founded Center for Community Progress to be a technical assistance presence in those conversations around managing vacant, abandoned, and deteriorating property. Mm. That acute crisis of the foreclosure crisis was certainly one way where a portfolio of property shows up, but there are other systems that um, contribute to the presence of vacancy and abandonment in a city or a county, such as tax delinquency, code enforcement liens, heirs property or family law, not quite being sure what who the ownership is, what is the clear title. And so our goal is to try and help a range of partners. We certainly start with government because they're so important, but the strategy of land banking as a way to approach vacancy abandonment and deterioration mm -hmm. but those properties being located inside neighborhoods and communities means we have to also foster and help others foster conversations that are uh, more equitable that recognize history that name the institutional and structural racism of taxation in this country of code enforcement in this country the the way it's become more policed to do code enforcement so when we talk about those themes and issues with great honesty we can help make the community more a part of the conversation. They are the ones living next to that empty building, walking past that overgrown plot of land. They have the most, they are the most directly impacted. So they should have a very clear and powerful role in the conversation about what happens to that property. And land banking itself as a strategy is one where the land bank is a, a, a quasi sort of a public authority mm. um, can clear delinquent taxes it can clear back municipal liens it can do a lot to bring that building or or vacant parcel of land into the marketplace again and either donate it to a partner who will create housing or businesses or sell it if that's appropriate but to find a way to bring it back so that it's being taxed and taxes are paid and the digest, the shared resources of the community now reflect that that property is, is functioning again. Our goal is just simply to turn you know, vacant property into assets for the neighbors and communities where it's located and to make sure that the 
the, the governments who might use land banking and other strategies like it to get to those properties or, or process those properties are supported, but also challenged to make sure they're doing equitable community engagement, that they are thinking about their own connection to their neighborhood and, and how that translates into how they'll communicate with other human beings in the process. And we'll, we'll hit on a couple of those themes in just a little bit, talking about systemic inequality and maybe the relationship as well between energy burden and vacant properties. So, so thank you for, for highlighting some of those issues that you're working on addressing. And Joe, for you, what's top of mind in terms of what you're trying to address at, at Huntsville Utilities? Well, uh, we have been doing the energy efficiency upgrades, retrofit work on owner-occupied properties since about 2016. And a lot of that in partnership with TVA through programming that they have. Uh, one was a court-ordered settlement that Huntsville Utilities spent $12 million improving, I think the exact number is 1,138 housing units. Wow. Uh, in that process, we got into a really fantastic relationship with our local housing authority and able to match TVA dollars to HUD dollars to do uh, in some cases, entire public housing developments, which has been great, great work. But, and, and we've hit on it a couple of times, even in the, the opening session, and since we've been sitting here, those renter-occupied properties, especially the single-family homes, are some of the worst properties in terms of energy efficiency and energy burden out there. Mm. Um, Huntsville Utilities wants to get into that space. Thankfully, other utilities in the TVA region have already stepped into that. Uh, most notably, I think Nashville, Knoxville, Chattanooga have been doing that work for a few years now. So we're, there's a lot we can borrow from them. And so just making sure that we're moving forward to address the needs of those customers who don't know how to get help. And in that vicious spiral of constantly high bills, often past due, and that's punitive, and so by employing technologies like you know AMI, smart metering, and be able to reduce those fees and being more uh, flexible on payment arrangements, especially after the very hot summer and the very high natural gas prices that we're dealing with right now, yeah. that directly correlate to high rates, making sure that customers don't feel like we're working against them. So getting into that renter space is, is the next step for us. That's what we'll be working on for the next year or more. I just wanted yeah. to say, because, so um, while I'm very much on my learning journey to understand the state level situations on some of this, I do have a deeper tap route into Metro Atlanta and yeah. the Atlanta Regional Housing Forum uh, this summer did, a, one of, did their summer session on single family rental and had some really interesting, you know, included some links to great reporting on the, the ways in which tens of percentage more of single-family rental uh, purchases are happening in uh, black communities in Metro mm -hmm. Atlanta and low-income black communities. Um, so you can, if you're going to have challenges upgrading single-family rental and yet they are all being purchased in low-income black neighborhoods or neighbor, you know, communities of color, yeah. there you have another direct nexus between this discussion. We're having like, why is it easier to buy land there or to buy the homes there than in a white, you know, predominantly white zip code? So there's some, you know, there's some disaggregated data we can look at to talk a little bit about where that institutional and structural racism question is really showing up and what it will mean for trying to, you know, put everybody in an energy-efficient home, whether you own or rent. So I'd love to key into this theme of, of rental properties, right? I, I do foresee that as a big challenge. And 
how do you how do you even start as, from the utility perspective start to engage in that space are you starting to work with property owners are there you know pools of federal funding as part of the new investments coming down that are specifically dedicated to addressing this issue it's not clear yet in terms of the funding available at our level because well it hasn't all the all the application process hasn't been worked out yet mm. um, and again I think what we'll find is that the utility won't get those funds community organizations will get those funds and we can partner with them to make sure they're getting where they need to go through you know consumption data and, and things that we can have access to without including any customer information and we we've already done this work we know where the need is and we're we partner with all these community organizations that have already been helping this customer through bill assistance namely and so let's find those customers who continuously need that bill assistance mm -hmm. and say okay how do we offer a more permanent solution to the spiral that they're in of high bills high bills high bills i mean it's inefficient housing and we've got all the technical staff in-house so we don't do a turnkey program with these are huntsville utilities employees that get out into the community and do this work and so we're ready to help or to spend these funds to get to those customers it just becomes an issue in the process and whatever strings are attached to the funding stream that you are using and that's the daunting piece so we're a, a little different than a lot of municipal utilities because we have TVA a lot of times that funding comes through TVA mm. and in Huntsville you know we already have that great we every time TVA has a pilot project we're in line and we often get to do those and our customers benefit from that so home uplift has been a big one and it has a mechanism for rental properties we're just an old-school smallish municipal utility uh, and stepping off in that space is there are a lot of legal questions that uh, our leadership can get a little uptight about but because we've been doing this work for so long now those those barriers are starting to come down so we'll see what happens we're just ready to dive in with whoever has money to spend to help those customers so you just mentioned uh, the home uplift program mm -hmm. that you all helped to, to operate and run can you tell us a little bit more about that program and maybe some other programs that you're particularly proud of that you're operating right now well the home uplift is TVA's uh, effort to continue doing the work that came down from the court order which generated the extreme energy makeover program and it's just a uh, energy audit based home improvement program where you're either or improving the energy efficiency of a home and the quality of life we talked about on the call when we did the extreme energy makeover program there was a goal of uh, the original goal of 25 percent energy efficiency savings on their consumption yeah. and that was pretty much unattainable so it came down to around 18%, which was a, a little more realistic. But what we found is some of the homes that were receiving the help had heating and cooling equipment that didn't work. Hmm. So their bills went up, but their quality of life was better. Hmm. That's when we started to get very interested in the discussion about home health and air quality in the home and how do we, how do we 
use these programs to do the non-energy benefit side of the equation. TVA hasn't quite figured that out yet, but that's what started Home Uplift after Extreme Energy Makeover, and they're collecting, TVA is collecting that data. We'll see what happens with that. They've been working with the University of Tennessee and a few other organizations in Knoxville to crunch the numbers and see exactly what else is happening when we do this work. So Home Uplift is a dollar-for-dollar dollar match between the utility or some other funding source and TVA, and then the program runs much the same. You have a income-qualified customer who will receive those upgrades for free if they qualify. And, well, the cost of materials has driven the average on home. I think what we're spending now on average per home is about 18000 Wow. Well, heating and cooling equipment has gotten decidedly more expensive <laughs> yeah. these last couple of years, but it's been nice to work with TV and watch them flex to make sure that we're still doing about the same amount of work in these homes that are receiving the help so that the customers continue to benefit in that, you know, the lower bill way and then the home health way. They've taken home uplift and now there's a school uplift wow. program in the Valley. I'm... I'm after them about doing a YMCA uplift thing. I, I'm on the board of our local Y, and I asked the director to give me a map. Well, there's Ys scattered all across the valley, and many of them, their facilities are old, dilapidated. You know, and that drives members away, and in a member-based organization, and member, membership is your lifeline. And so I've got them talking about that a little bit. I hope that will bear some fruit in the coming couple of years. And then, of course, we're also TVA is shifting away from electrification. Mm. You know, it's, I'm a PR guy, I get it, back to energy efficiency. And so that's, I'm very happy to see that because you know, the, the cheapest energy, the cleanest energy is the energy never used. So getting back into this energy efficiency mindset is, we've, I've been waiting for it. I got a little off track there, but <laughs> that's, that's what we want to continue doing in Huntsville, and all this federal funding is still not clear how that's going to affect us. I think you you highlighted something that that's really important is it's not just about you know the the utility bills every month. It's about having a place that's safe and healthy to live in as well. And I know in North Carolina, our organization, the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, partners with a number of utilities and other community partner organizations in like tariffed on bill programs, for example, to help low income customers be able to finance the cost of new energy efficiency improvements via their bill to see that around 20% cost savings every month. But the biggest impediment that we've seen to operating those programs is a lot of the houses that we're going to are structurally unsound. Right. There's so many pieces of the home that just need to be improved before we even start focusing on energy efficiency. And so I think there's been a recognition in North Carolina that we need to start allocating funds really focused on the health and safety of the home even before we talk about the energy efficiency level. And so I think it is, you know, there, it's really important to talk about just the, the health of the home and having a safe place to live, uh, but then being able to afford your bills every month. So Odetta, I, I want to turn to you and give you the opportunity to talk about some programs that you're excited about that your organization's involved in. Thank you. Uh, it's so interesting to hear specific programs described as you and Joe have just done and think how that reflects um, some of the, again, the systemic challenges, right? I would be so intrigued to see what 
neighborhoods, your YMCA's that would most benefit from, you know, an uplift program, where are they located? What's the disaggregated by race data for, for that? I'd be so interested to see for these homes that are so dilapidated that you couldn't, you know, put in some energy upgrades first, like where are they? What are their zip codes? Who lives there? Um, I think I have some thoughts about it, but you always got to wait till you run the numbers. But, um, you know, those uh, conditions of neglect reflect you know, uh, purposeful disinvestment over mm. decades, right? That is what that is. Um, and when I was managing Transformation Alliance, we were very interested, we were exploring the intersections of race, climate, and health, which is a much shorter way of saying that long sentence you had to read at the start. But <laughs> one of the things we wanted to do was support resilience hubs. We had really great partners in Transformation Alliance supporting energy efficiency, solar energy, solar storage, and we wanted to put solar, I guess, capture cells on one of the historic firehouses mm. in this historically black neighborhood of West End here in Atlanta. And the, the building couldn't hold up, you know, mm. the, the added weight. Wow. Um, and so we were trying to go to a mobile storage system and it just got hard to find the vendor, like things sort of, but, but as someone that was entering into that and learning about it, it was just so interesting to, to hear that the, the physical structures that we wanted to utilize uh, were not up to some of the demands of using a new former technology. And so that was also reflective of the ways that when Transformation Alliance was asked to, you know, amplify community voice and, and really push for, you know, coordinated efforts around equitable transit-oriented development, and we'd go to community or go to partners and be like, let's talk about this. And they're like, first, I need to get my kid to school. And actually, I'm really too tired to talk about that right now until I know that I have some uh, higher weight. You know what I mean? The ways in which people's daily lives were not being supported showed up immediately in their capacity to do the sort of political action yeah. that we were supposed to come get them to do or help them do or whatever. So one, just when you see political action in these justice movements and you think that that is, you have to think what that is coming out of, the additional energy or the, the intense motivation that those families are feeling to add that kind of civic work and justice work to the complexity of their daily life they're just heroes. They are heroes in every possible definition. So um, finding ways for them to return home to a safe place is kind of what has ended up being part of my why to do this work. Those people deserve to come home and rest in places where their, their lungs <laughs> are not taxed, where their children and their elders, because these are often multi-generational families, mm -hmm. the whole family gets to um, breathe clean air and rest and recoup for the work that they're, you know, that they're choosing to do every day. So you know, this question of resilience hubs, I really love. We talked about multi-solving when we were prepping for this. Right. And so um, the one I wanted to talk about that I'm excited about, I've been trying to support the Historic District um, Development Corporation here in Atlanta, HDDC, which is um, co-founded by Dr. Coretta Scott King and many other wonderful people to focus on the sweet Auburn district of the city of Atlanta, which is where Dr. King was, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was born and raised and where he currently rests in power. And, and to make sure that that community has the housing and the services that it deserves and, and once had for itself before intentional systemic um, intervention and disinvestment kind of uh, flipped some of those those trends for the for the community but um, now they are sort of revitalizing around a framework of sweet Auburn green and equitable and mm -hmm. really trying to embrace energy efficiency green infrastructure 
water management infrastructure, not only to build like the best and sort of most cutting edge buildings and spaces for this community that deserves it, but to think about ways to layer in multiple things, right? So much like uh, people who are like, I'm going to take care of kids and take care of grandmama and still show up for a community meeting, are multi-solving all the time. How can their environment multi-solve, their built environment? So HDDC's Front Porch Program is a a new build, but they're looking to put a beautiful green rooftop on this building that would have community gardens, classroom space, relaxation space, just open space, and would be an amazing um, offering to the neighborhood. And so we're just trying to make that green rooftop happen. We think we'll talk a little bit about uh, why that seems to be the piece of the whole overall development that folks are saying get rid of that first when it costs have gone up in the years since this program was this um, front porch idea and development was first conceptualized and penciled out like we need to talk about the you know the, the pro formas of these projects right so you're exactly right land prices go up costs of goods and services you know go up uh, requirements around who to hire and how to pay them um, do not go down they at least stay steady or go up relative to everything else so in a moment where what you thought you could do with $5 million now you cannot, the green rooftop being one of the first things that feels like it can be value engineered out is unfortunate and maybe something we can talk about um, as well. I think the only thing I would add to that and that something that could help every community is, and it's not a popular word among certain folks, but much of this needs to be regulated. Mm. And especially municipal government is hesitant to do that certainly in Huntsville because it would be a step in a direction that the city's never gone before. But to nail down how we're going to address some of these systemic problems by upholding habitability standards, mm -hmm. especially in rental properties. Mm -hmm. um, there's some interest to do that and then we can play a much more meaningful role in how the city applies that but you know that's that's heavy regulation and generally people don't think they like that but there comes with that an education piece talking about you know this family that is stressed in every way that doesn't have time to attend that community meeting because they're trying to meet their most basic needs we ran into that when we did the uplift pilot in a public housing development and these are not people that want to shine a light on themselves mm -hmm. uh, they're they're just busy trying to get by and that was the first time in my life i'd ever seen that firsthand i'm thankful for the experience it changed my perspective on how and why we do the work because we'll get asked occasionally by potential partners we get some good pr out of that and i'm like that's not why we do it mm -hmm. and we don't seek the pr because that's not what that customer wants they don't want any attention. In a rare instance, we'll have a customer that wants to get up and thank, and that's wonderful. But we don't intentionally try to get mileage out of that because that's not what we're trying to do. So for a municipal government to come along and really in a meaningful way address habitability standard, hold property owners who use that property as a means of business to a a higher standard but there's really no standard right now mm. and the and the municipalities I don't think probably different in Atlanta you know there's a lot more there's a lot more to draw from the problems are bigger in a town like Huntsville you know it's folks just 
have conveniently turned a blind eye to it. But we have the same problems, it's just smaller scale. So if the city would, pardon the term, suck it up and just take that step forward, then the whole community benefits from that. Because when you have a, a family or a neighborhood that doesn't have to worry as much about those basic needs, then everything improves. They feel like they have a stake in the community and that's what we want. Mm -hmm. So, you know, then they can then they can yell at me about high bills and stuff and that's fine. That's why I'm there. <laughs> well, you know, just really quickly, yeah. the state of Georgia only recently passed a um, a state level bill preventing trying to prevent retaliation when a renter reports poor landlord behavior. Mm -hmm. And that comment I made earlier about, you know, the predominance of single family rental portfolio in certain neighborhoods. The question was also asked in that forum, you know, why does Georgia seem to be, you know, why is Atlanta, Metro Atlanta and Georgia seem to be, you know, not quite ground zero, but definitely a hot spot for this type of investment. And it's because there's no state level regulation or very, mm -hmm. very, very little. And so um, as a business proposition, you can come in and kind of set it up the way you want to. And if the municipality doesn't feel that there's a state law to which they can hook some additional regulation or some way to be a little more, you know, uh, directive with that government, you know, then, you, you know what I mean? So, so now you're, 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 I think we do still have a lot of that at the state level. And one of the next steps is going to be what are the what are the politics and what's the policy work that we need to do to get a little more protection for renters. Right, some re-regulation, re really. But I think this yeah. is an area that has not ever been regulated, mm. and it's big money. And in the political climate we are in, big money has a lot of influence. It always has, yeah. but in a different way now. It's you know. Personally, it feels much more sinister, but it isn't. Uh, if you go back to post-Civil War South, this has been going on for over 150 years. And so now that we've had some awakening to it, uh, things that have been kept from the public in terms of education are out there now. It's easier to find. So it's identifiable and so now we, we as voters have to make the politicians want to change it. So we've got to take that power back and say, hey, we see you, we see what you're doing. You know, I don't care how much your funder, how much money they have, they still can't vote for you. Mm -hmm. And demand that this area be regulated because the problems are so bad. And so let's fix it. We can fix it. We need to start fixing. Start fixing it. And I think you all uh, started talking about this just now, but I'll ask you in a, a more direct way. So how do we begin to address some of these systemic inequality issues to ensure that these disadvantaged communities are involved in creating upward mobility opportunities and to ensure that they're also able to take a part of these federal investments being made in energy? And I know we talked about, you know, one of the challenges is a lot of these communities are just trying to get by, right? And it makes it really hard to engage and participate in the conversations about how this funding is distributed. How do we begin to start addressing some of this? Um, we know we don't want to shortchange what 
you know, the presence of a SIA, the presence of, say, a Georgia Advancing Communities Together, which is a housing state, a statewide housing um, membership organization here, or Georgia Stand Up, which is a statewide um, get out the vote voter empowerment um, nonprofit here. Those, those groups have been working for years and years and learning how to collaborate, how to do coalition work, how to uh, motivate. I was really intrigued watching Georgia Act and Georgia Stand Up um, over, the pa over the presidential election, um, how they were doing get out the vote. It was no longer just, you know, um, candidate form after candidate form. The candidates were there and others were there, but it was also come out and we have free groceries, we will give you COVID testing, and we might even have some vaccinations available for you. Mm. Um, or like the collars and votes kind of, you know, like that kind of um, marketing, frankly. You know, messaging is how the, um, some of these events, and they would go to people, like get on that bus, right? And travel from place to place to place, dozens of cities over the course of a campaign. And bringing with it not just the, hey, we you know, gonna extract your vote from you. We know that we are asking you to engage and use your time civically and that means you might need some help with dinner tonight because you came here and, you know, so here's some food, you know, the way that they really thought about the full person that they were trying to engage with. That felt different to me than maybe I've seen in a while. But again, I, I'm always so careful not to discount the, the years and years in which that has been how organizing happens, right? You create community and you care for one another. And out of that care, you then produce an action, right? Or ask of an action and it comes. I've really um, taken a journey and personally landed on the side of, uh, you know, direct income payments. You know, I've participated in a task force here in Atlanta for economic security in the form of basic income. And there's some pilots going on in Georgia right now uh, where households will be receiving $850 a month, no strings attached, for two years. And the premise is that that is going to give some relief to those families that will probably show up in pay payment of energy bills, right? Way more folks are trying to use funds like that appropriately than the, the few that might be, air quotes for the podcast listeners, you know, scamming the situation. Like the Lord will take care of them. I wanna think about the families that are really using that money to give themselves relief, to put the child in an after school program, to pick up a hobby, to have to take a class. Those things are happening and we now have the studies that show that that is really what most people are doing with direct income payments. So um, when you ask what, what, what do we do, part of it is like just give people help, right? Give them some help so that they um, can take a breather and figure out what's the steps that will improve them or the others that are living with them, you know, their daily life. So things that uh, we've tried, and I think for a number of years, we've sort of swept off as entitlement or charity or some of these other words are actually part of how we get through a pandemic-informed world, right? A climate-changing world. We're, talk we're having this podcast in the wake of Hurricane Ian and the incredible images as an organization working in vacant, abandoned, and deteriorating property. What is going to happen to those homes mm. and the land that is now underwater, literally, in areas of Florida? Somebody owns that on paper. Are they ever going to go back? Will they ever pay another tax on that? What will that municipality do with those pieces of property? What will that family do? How can they regain the money, the value of their home? You know, will you ever be able to pay the flood insurance for that again? Like where, you know, so um, in this kind of world, right, we have got to understand the, the critical importance of um, these are not handouts. When you help families get stable, 
you are um, you are investing like in our shared like survival as a society. Joe looks like you right. Have some oh God, so much to, to touch on there, and and the thing that really jumped out at me is the culture of fraud and using that as an excuse not to do something mm-hmm. or over-regulate to the extent where the program or the pot of money becomes ineffective and may never get spent, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera, when the fraud represents such a tiny piece of the good work being done. And, you know, <laughs> it's I'll go back to sort of the utility culture. The, the municipal utility culture is uh, let's swat the fly with a frying pan <laughs> rather than uh, fly swatter <laughs> and try to regulate our way out of problems ever happening. Well, that's not realistic. It's, it's stupid. And so to use fraud as an excuse yeah. not to, you know, charity, when did charity become a bad word? And entitlement doesn't just belong to poor people. Right. I mean, some of the, some of the most entitled people I've ever, I'm a white guy. I mean, you know, uh, some of the most entitled people I've ever met are very wealthy people. So we just have to stop letting those in power fool us with those excuses not to act. It's ridiculous. The need is there. If you just look, you can easily identify it. So let's stop lying to ourselves and lying to the people that need need the help. And as a society, include everyone in that society. And you do that that. with improvements. We can do it. So Odetta had mentioned a number of, of organizations that you've partnered with here in the Atlanta area. Joe, I'm curious, from the utility perspective, how important are partnerships in reaching all of your, your ratepayers, your customers? Extremely. And, and what types of organizations are you working with? Well, and, and I touched on that earlier. You know, we work very closely with Community Action because that's where the LIHEAP money goes. Uh, and helping them get to the customers that need the help. Our, we run our bill assistance program because we can't technically, as a municipal utility, do that. So we have a customer-funded program that goes through the Salvation Army. Uh, We work a lot with the United Way and all the organizations they support. And then a number of food insecurity organizations like Food Banks and Manor House. These are local organizations that only exist in Huntsville, but every community has them. And thankfully, and again, I have to point at TVA, during the pandemic, there were opportunities that at the TVA level and the local level, we saw to think about funding these programs differently. And so through their community care fund and the matches that we have done ourselves and had other community corporate citizens match money, we started helping uh, organizations that we never thought about helping before. Well, now we're, that, that relationship is there. and both organizations involved in whatever case may be, we're going to exploit that so that we're helping our customers, helping our community, helping our residents survive. So it, it, it went from two or three organizations, you know, we've been, we've had wonderful relationship with the Salvation Army for many years. Our project share program has been in place for over 30 years as a bill assistance tool. But 
all it takes is one extreme weather event, particularly a very cold winter, for new partners to emerge. So every time we see that opportunity, we seize it. And it's just a, a phone call or a coffee and just get that familiarity and trust because, um, you know, legislatively we're territorial, but in terms of who we help, we're not. And so establishing that relationship and building the trust of the organization with the utility, just just them knowing they have a way into the organization, which in a lot of cases is me and my team, uh, is so helpful. So we're living in a time now, especially with all this funding, getting down to folks that need it the most, it's becoming a regular thing now. And so I'm hopeful that that translates into a different way of, you know, taxing our society and using government money, using the utility money to make sure that we're not the reason somebody's not getting by. So with all of the, the federal funding coming down and all of the, the wonderful programs that you both have highlighted, what does your vision for an equitable future look like from a 40,000 foot perspective? Odetta, I know that's a lot to chew on, but. It's gonna look very <laughs> joyful. Honestly, it's going to look like people who are well rested. <laughs> it's going to look like children who are incredibly smart getting the chance to express their intelligence, right? Through through their their health being optimal, their homes being safe, their schools being uh, well resourced. You know, we had talked a little bit about the nexus feeling maybe sometimes a little thin between like, you know, my focus on vacancy right now and energy, but the fact is a lot of the tax delinquency that re results in vacant property are families who are also energy burdened, right, who are also under earning, who do not have the time and headspace to go get that next certificate we claim everyone needs to get to get the next job, you know. So there is a, a clear nexus. We might be further down the thread when you, by the time you get to a vacant property or not paying your taxes or not paying a code you know code lien or something but if you follow the thread back to the root cause it ends up being what we're talking about here so so an equitable future around all of these issues be it energy efficiency be it vacancy and property would be families that have what they need to be to be you know the the, the cliches now are secure and thriving but they're not cliches they're they're the goal. It's real. <laughs> it's real. And it looks like, you know, kids who are maybe playing and growing food in that community garden that was a vacant property yeah. or a family that purchases the side lot that was empty next to them through a process and has now increased their, you know, their generational wealth right. by owning a little more land. It would be a very happy day if we could get to this vision that you're asking us to talk about, because I think folks will be cared for in that place. And, and then maybe we're having another set of, I, I think a lot about the amount of energy. So as a, as, as a mother of a black child, I think a lot about him and my daughter and their safety. And sometimes I wonder what, what books could I be writing with the energy that I use to worry about them, about their safety, about my husband's safety. Like these are the, these are the intangible losses to the society. I am sometimes not offering what I could because my energy is taken up with concern and trying to uh, navigate and strategize around their safety what i feel they need to be safe so imagine a world where that amount of energy is like unleashed multiplied by whatever what if the what if the cure for the cancer that would strike me down is locked up in the head of a child that can't get ap chemistry or something like there's potential out there that we are not unlocking 
and we could be, um, or at least setting the stage for it to be unlocked, and, and we should be investing in that direction. Agreed, and, and to me, the, the key word is sustainability, mm -hmm. and every single thing about our culture and society plays into it. Words that shouldn't feel dangerous like fairness are now, mm -hmm. because it, this perception that because you're helping this resident, you're taking something away from this other resident, and that's not the case. No. It's very frustrating, and so, you know, I, one of the things, you know, you talk about programs and something that I really want, I've had a few conversations with people that are here at the conference and people in our state house. I like to be part of Alabama starting its first green bank so that, especially in rural Alabama, because that's where our need mm -hmm. is, is really bad, doing, you know, rooftop solar well you know solar is not great in the southeast and that's true but if you just make the investment in the people and not the hardware you know think about this investment that you're making then i think the utilities can get around the table with the regulators and and the elected officials and find a way because right now we're doing nothing as a state in my opinion uh, maybe we're doing something but if we if we are, it's not evident, and that's wrong. So there's lots of things that have been done elsewhere. Yeah. There's no reason why we, I think Georgia has a green bank, or is trying, trying to. We're trying? Yeah. Okay. But that, that's frustrating because it just makes sense. So, but we're having the conversations, and that's mm -hmm. relatively new. Um, and so I think we'll get there. We just have to keep slogging it out. People that do what I do, who believe in this effort, just have to keep slogging away. And when you get an opportunity to get on the air and educate people, take it. Yep. And uh, I'll use this opportunity to plug North Carolina. We're actually in the midst of creating a green bank because there was $27 billion actually allocated in the IRA specifically for state green banks and investing in this space, which is exciting. And I hope that Alabama will have the opportunity to take a part of that, that funding. Um, all right, so I, I wanna thank both of our panelists for, for joining us this morning. And my key takeaway from today's episode is the necessity to take a step back, think critically, and ensure the distribution of some of the largest investments in clean energy are equitable in reaching the communities that really need them the most. Amidst all of the excitement to deploy these funds, we need to make sure that we're taking the time to open the doors of access to the communities that don't often have a voice in the decision-making process. Both Joe and Odetta highlighted in their remarks some of the communities within their communities that are struggling most, who often don't have the capacity to participate in public meetings or stakeholder convenings. So how do we make sure we're proactively reaching out and engaging those communities? I don't have the answer, but it's something that I challenge each of our listeners to think critically about over the coming months and years. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 79 of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.